Well, if you would, turn to John chapter 5. I did something a, an old teacher should know better than to do, and that's to take too much material and try to cram it in a 50-minute lesson. All right? That's how you know if they're a new teacher, because they try to cover too much. And I'm, I'm a fear, fearful that I've done the same today. Um, <clears throat> and so just bear with me. We may not get through all of it, or I may cut some things which will be painful to some, but I, I want you to kind of get the overall arching concepts that are coming through in this chapter. It is in many ways a turning point. Up until this point, Jesus has had a private ministry. Now it's going to become very public, and you can only imagine what that's going to do. It gives gas to the holy huddle, right? <clears throat> uh, they're having a hernia when they see Jesus doing some things that goes against their rules and regulations, it goes against their religious practice and, and also ultimately is an affront to them. So that's what I want you to see as we, we, we go through this passage. But chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to read the first few verses here. After these things, there was a Jewish feast. When it's debated, this could be the Passover. Uh, the Net Bible's adamant that it's the Passover. I have a little hard time arguing that because this we're out near a pool and it's usually cool during the Passover, but okay. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool called Bethesda, or we call it Bethesda in Aramaic. Uh, again, our audience is not from Palestine. They're not from modern Israel, or they would have known Aramaic. They wouldn't have needed this explained. So this audience is not familiar with the local language here in Jerusalem or in Israel, which has five covered walkways. <coughs> A great number of sick, blind, lame, paralyzed people were lying in these walkways. Now a man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. This is not 38 year ways Jesus loves him, all right? <laughs> Don't go down that road. Uh, we saw how many water pots at the Cana Miracle? Six. Six, I'm, I'm guessing I'm six. We're going to see a, a hundred, nearly 150 fish that are caught by Peter later on. It's just what John is doing. He's highlighting the uh, magnitude of the miracle. This guy, this isn't that he's been crippled for one week or a month or even a couple years. No, 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 no. He, he hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. So, to, to get up and just start walking without rehab? I don't think so. That's what he's trying to argue. When Jesus was, saw him lying there, when he realized that the man had been disabled a long time already, he said to him, do you want to become well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get into the water, someone else goes down there before me. Jesus said to him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately the man was healed and he picked up his mat and started walking. And you mustn't miss the parenthetical statement at the end. This is key. This is the fingernails across the blackboard. It says that day was a Sabbath. And you don't want to miss it because that's the springboard in the next section we'll get into in a minute. Let me tell you a little bit about this pool and about what we're looking at, this healing of the paralytic. Uh, one of my favorite spots in Jerusalem to take people is to this pool. In the late 1800s, many scholars, especially those from Germany, were arguing, ah, chapter 5 of John is an, a further indication that the author uh, 
is making errors because such a pool in Jerusalem does not exist. They were correct in the late 1800s. It wasn't until the 1900s that archaeologists stumbled on an enormous pool, which we now know is the one that John is describing. God has a sense of humor when it comes to archaeology, and that's always what I love. He's always got something to, to, to give to the naysayers. Um, the Tel Dan inscription, which mentions David, it's the earliest inscription we have found in the 1980s. Um, now archaeologists are trying to say it's a forgery, even though it was found in, on site. But anyway, you know, it, it, they got to do something to discredit it uh, because it just messes up their theology. It's a problem. Well, indeed, it's a historical location. Here is the pool. It's enormous. Uh, in fact, it's, oh my, it would be at least from this wall all the way down to the other end of the wall because it's a, about 315 foot long pool. It was broken to half. In fact, if you look at the, the chart on the right, at the, the top, the two blue spots, that trap point with a, a divider in between, that is the pool, and that's where it would have set. The pool of Bethesda and the pool of Siloam were used for purification. They were used for baptisms for the Jewish uh, pilgrims as they went up to the temple. So you, it, it could accommodate an enormous crowd, uh, in this, this pool. And so... Uh, we know it exists. You can go to Jerusalem. You can stand there today. And the significance is uh, that many had this idea in the first century that it was a place of healing. Uh, later, it's interesting, the god Asclepius, the god of healing, will be worshipped here at this site by the Romans who will inhabit the city. Um, we have remains that indicate that. And there was this idea, uh, verse 4, by the way, if you have a, a good Bible, has it omitted or they've got it in brackets. Does everyone see that? Chapter 5-4. Uh, I'm just going to address the uh, elephant in the room. 5-4. Do you see that? Most manuscripts do not have that in the original. Now, that should not alarm you because it's not the English version which is inspired. It's the originals that are inspired, right? And part of Actual criticism is getting back to the original. Here's the great news, which we learned last year when we had uh, our Digging Deeper conference from Dan Wallace. There is no major variant which affects major doctrine. So in other words, this doesn't need to undermine your faith, but that verse talks about what? Does anyone have it in their version or down on the footnotes? What does verse 4 read? Okay, so verse 4 states that the Jews believe, some Jews believe, that an angel would go down and stir up the water with his finger, and when it was stirring and bubbling, if you got in first, you're going to be healed. I have no doubt that that, that probably was a, a view that was espoused by many in the first century. Otherwise, why are they all hanging out here, and, and, and why does he say, I try to get down, but I can't? What's intriguing is recent uh, work on the pool of Bethesda said there was a drainage underneath and what it would do is some, sometimes it would bubble up and uh, that's probably what they thought was the angel of the Lord stirring the water. All right, So there was some beliefs, some ideas that circulated around this. Water is vital in a desert area and it carries life. I mean think of the Nile and its, its role within Egyptology. Same idea here, even uh, syncretistic notion. Questions on that? I don't mean to undermine your world, but uh, 
I don't think verse 4 is in the original, all right? Doesn't mean I don't believe this is an inspired word, verbal plenary, and I do, all right? Um, but the original, not uh, the King James or other English versions that we might use, all right? So anyway, the water stirred up. The, the day was the Sabbath. We got that. And then notice what Jesus says to this man as he comes. He says, uh, do you want to become well? Seems like a rather obvious question, doesn't it? Many scholars argue, no, the guys, we're not sure he does want to become well. You've worked with people. They like to be down on the wall and they're, you know, they're not going to change. This is how, who they are. Uh, there's that idea. Uh, down in the notes I mentioned, there could be, however, an idea simply that this, this man is wrestling with um, Jesus' identity or Jesus is, is, is wanting to confirm indeed this man is there. It's debated. But we see here he says, sir, I have no one to put me in. Of course, Jesus goes right to the heart of it. He says, just take up your mat and walk. Does the man know who Jesus is? No. no. Does Jesus reveal his identity? No. Was faith a prerequisite for the miracle? No. Jesus did many things so that you might believe that he is the Christ and that he could reveal his glory. We see that in all of these miracles, and that is exactly what's going to happen here in this scene. Well, the springboard is the Sabbath. So let's move further into the text and let's see what happens. So here they come, the frozen chosen. The Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, we are so happy you can now walk. It is a Sabbath. You're not permitted to carry your mat. Bless their pointed little heads. Isn't that amazing? 38 years. Do you realize being a crippled, he's, he is prohibited to enter the temple. He's prohibited to go to religious events. He's prohibited to go to marriages, funerals. He's an outcast. And yet all I can say is you shouldn't be carrying your mat. <laughs> really? Are you concerned about bed bugs? What's the issue? Verse 11, he answered the man who made me well, said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And this guy has no idea who told him to do this other than he's some guy. But the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had slipped out. Yes, and that is that. Thank you, Steve. Way to go. All right. <laughs> Take up your phone and walk. No. After, the, after this, Jesus found him at the temple and said, Look, you have become well. Don't sin anymore, lest anything worse happen to you. I mean, what's worse than physical crippledness? Damnation, right? And, and notice, by the way, where is the man? First thing he does, he goes to the temple. <laughs> 38 years, he hasn't been able to go to the temple. This is his opportunity. I mean, this is, this is the hub, the center of life. And so to, to be able to go and worship the Lord and to be in the temple and to, to see all the action. And, and Jesus warns, be careful. And verse 15 is astounding to me. And the man went away and says, hey, now I know his name. Uh, his name is Jesus. Now, there could be some naivety here in what the man is doing. Uh, maybe he thinks he's doing a service by helping the religious rulers be informed of who this Jesus or who this guy really is. That is, his name is Jesus. But the tension is mounting, isn't it? 
The third time we see the Sabbath is in verse 16. Now because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began persecuting him. So he told them, my father is working until now and I too am working. For this reason, the Jewish leaders were trying harder to what? Kill him. The line has been drawn in the sand, and for the first time in John's gospel, we see the hostility rising among the Jewish establishment and Jesus. And now they want to kill him. They don't want to thank him for healing a guy that's been lame for 38 years. They want to destroy him because he's upsetting the cart. It's just astounding to me. These are the ones who should know better, Right? These are the ones who claim to be the disciples of Moses. I mean, they've been to seminary or cemetery. They've, they've had it, right? And they have it all going on. Verse 19, so Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth. The son can do nothing on his own initiative, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Now, we're going to... Just bear with me. I want to read this section and then we'll kind of boil it down into a couple points. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he does and he will show him greater deeds than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life. For furthermore, the father does not judge anyone but is assigned all the judgment to the son so that all people will honor the son just as they honor the Father. You get this? This is what we call binetarianism. The Father and the Son are equal and yet distinct. Don't miss this. The religious rulers didn't miss it. We'll get to that back in a minute, back up earlier in the text, verse 18. I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but is crossed over from death to life. I tell you the solemn truth, the time is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, thus he's granted the Son to give life. Do not be amazed, verse 28, at this, because the time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Reminds you of Lazarus, doesn't it? Uh, scene we'll see later on. The ones who have done what is good to the resurrection resulting in life, the ones who have done what is evil, to the resurrection resulting in condemnation. I could do nothing on my own initiative. Just as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. If it's, it's bad enough that he tells the religious rulers, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, we now see this uh, going on where Jesus is very clear what he's trying to say to the religious rulers. I and the Father operate as one because we are one. And, and they get that. The, the first premise they have no problem with. If you go back to the first part of this whole scene, it says the Father is working until now. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, God the Father works on the Sabbath. And the religious rulers would say, oh, yep, I agree with that. No problem. He's above the Sabbath. He, the, throne, the earth is his dwelling place. I mentioned this there in your notes on page two of that first paragraph. God does not break the Sabbath because the entire world was his residence. 
uh, he, uh, he sustains all of creation. I mean, people are born on the Sabbath. People die on the Sabbath. So yes, no problem saying God works. The first premise, got it. Second premise, that's when they have a holy hissy, right? Because what does he say? And I even mentioned this in your notes. Jesus is God's agent. He has divine prerogative over the Sabbath. They don't miss, they're, they're not missing this. What Jesus is saying is, I too am God. And, and as God's representative and as God, one with God, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It's going to become an issue time and time again as we move through John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's vital to the whole message of this book. And it's why Thomas will say when he sees the, the, the wound in Jesus' side, what does he say? My Lord and my God. That's the whole point of this book, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? And so we elevate him to who he is and all his glory. And Jesus is now giving his own uh, theological diatribe, his own dialogue on, on commentary on what has just transpired. I am the God of the Sabbath. In fact, he says greater deeds than these you're going to see. What's the greater deeds? <laughs> Resurrection from the dead. Right? Um, and, and I'm the giver of life. Just as I was with the Father at creation giving life physically, I'm going to be giving it spiritually and I'm going to be the judge. The Father's given me that right to do. So all of this comes through in this section, which is so significant. Questions on this? I, there's a lot here we could unpack, but because of time, we're not. Kyle, that's a great question. Um, the um, Bauckham... Richard Bauckham's written a book, One Lord, One God. That, no, it's Hurtado. Is that right, Keith? I think it's Hurtado. Hurtado has written a book, One Lord, One God, which I think he clearly shows in the first century, Jews had no problem with the divine agent being equated with God. In the 140s AD, an early church father will have a, art, a writes a book called The Dialogue with Trypho. He argues with a Jew to try to convince him of Christianity. It's one of the first apologetic pieces we have. It's never an issue about someone sharing the Godhead the deity with God the Father, which is intriguing, isn't it? Because one only needs to look at the Hebrew Scriptures to see that this Messiah is the Son of God and is God Himself in that relationship. All right, so that, that is not, the issue here is that Jesus claims to be God. He's not been through their rabbinic schools. He hasn't, doesn't have the credentials. And so their issue is Jesus. He hasn't done it their way. That's the whole point. Uh, he's not one of them. He's not one of the good old boys. Um, and, and so when Justin Martyr in his apologetic piece in the 140s, what he's got to argue with the Jews is where's the forerunner and where's the kingdom? If Jesus truly is the Messiah, where's this kingdom you talked about? That's Matthew's gospel. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews. And there's two major issues he must to, to, to argue that Jesus truly is the Davidic king, the Messiah. And secondly, that if he's the Messiah, where's the kingdom? And that's the other issue he has to address for a Jewish audience. Um, so 
it's, it, it's not that a monotheistic system has a problem with someone sharing the deity with God the Father. That's not the issue. The issue is Jesus. That's the issue. Good question. Does that make sense? That's, that's vital to what's going on here. Um, and that's still the issue today, isn't it? I've never heard anyone say, oh, Buddha. <laughs> oh, Hindu, God or whatever, I don't know. Uh, oh, uh, Allah. No, but I hear a lot of, oh, Jesus, which just is like talking about fingernails across the blackboard. Um, I don't even like to hear O-G-O-D, which I hear even among Christians, and it just, that's the Lord. That's His name. Be very careful. Um, the reverence due to God Almighty. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm starting to preach. Let's go back to text. <laughs> um, yeah, showing reverence to the Lord. I had a teacher in high school, and I went to public school. Someone said, O-G-O-D, and the teacher stopped and said, Oh, are you praying? Because if, if so, we'll, 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 we'll just pray right now here. <laughs> I love it. That is great. Westcott in his commentary says, A perfect sonship involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. They have to go hand in hand, right? If Jesus isn't acquiescing to the Father's will and the Father isn't loving his son, then they aren't equal. They have to function together. And that's the whole point here. And what Jesus does is he, he just takes these religious rulers and he takes them out and spanks them. I love it. He says, if God works on the Sabbath, and I have to work on the Sabbath because we function as one. We didn't, he, Jesus didn't get into a dialogue about, well, listen, you know, according to the Mishnah, and by the way, this is the Jewish codification law. Now, it's not written until 250 AD, but it goes back. You realize there's, a, there's an entire tractate a section, which we would call like a book, on the Sabbath. It's called the Shabbat. Well, let's just listen. These are things you can't do on the Sabbath. All right? Prohibit on the Sabbath are he who sows, plows, reaps, binds, sheaves, grinds, sifts, kneads, bakes, he who shears wool, washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins it, weaves it, makes two hoops, weaves two threads, ties, unties, sews two stitch, and, and on it goes and on it goes. It's crazy. You want to talk about binding and legalistic and oppressive. Jesus, I, I have come to give life. In, in all your rules and regulations, you're going to take a guy that hasn't walked for 38 years and, and you're going to be concerned because he picks up a mat and walks, which by the way was work. No question there, according to the, the rules and regulations after 38 years. Maybe he built up time because he didn't work on the other Sabbaths. Who knows? Right? This is sad. But Jesus said, I, I've come to give life. I've come to bring healing. That's who I am. Verse 31, watch this. Then Jesus moves. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. The Jews understood God will reveal his Messiah, not the Messiah revealing himself. This isn't a self-serving role. It's kind of like pastors today. You don't, you don't send out your resume <laughs> for a pastoral position. Uh, they come get you. There's another who testifies about me, and I know the testimony. Who's this? He, he mentions John. He's testified to the truth. And he's a lamp burning and shining. He wanted to rejoice greatly. But I have a testimony greater than that from John. 
really? Who is it? What's he say? It's the Father. And notice how the Father has given his stamp of approval. He says, and he's assigned me to complete the deeds I'm doing. And Britain, having lived there for a few years, you, if you get a, a package of ding-dongs at the store and it has the royal crescent on it, it means the, the royal family, the queen, loves those ding-dongs. And so she endorses them, right? That, that's the issue here. Jesus is endorsed via the miracles by God. Did you catch that? And they testify, these witnesses, there are many things Jesus did. These are recorded that you might believe. They're, they're a testimony. But even further, notice in verse 37, the Father has testified about me. This is my beloved Son. Right? Nor do you have His Word residing in you. Then 39, He goes for the juggler of the religious rulers. You study the Scriptures thoroughly because you think in them you possess eternal life. And if there are some Scriptures that testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept praise from people. Why? Because earlier in John, he says, I know their hearts. It's hollow praise. And in fact, he doesn't need it from them. I know you that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Isn't that true? I got all these rabbis that they endorse. Galel, Shammai, Yuan. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another and don't seek the praise that comes from the only God? Do not suppose that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you've placed your hope. That's amazing. Moses was their intercessor. He, he advocated for them in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it was taught that as many Jews believed that Moses continues that role in the presence of God. That he serves as the intercessor for the Jews. And, and notice what Jesus says. Uh-uh-uh-uh. He says... But Moses will condemn you because he wrote about me. Interesting, how many books of the Old Testament did Moses write? Five, the Pentateuch, first five books. What did the Samaritans hold to as Hebrew script, or as scripture? The first five books. And what did the woman at the well know? She knew that Jesus is a Messiah. She didn't go to seminary. <laughs> she didn't go to Bible college. In fact, she wasn't very churched. She was a woman, a Samaritan, and she got it. The religious rulers, bless their pointed little heads, had missed the whole point. So Jesus, <laughs> I've come to be a Savior. His testimony there under Roman numeral three of your notes. I mean, if we had time, we would go through all this. But I mean, look what Jesus says who testifies to me. John the Baptist, the signs that I do, the Father, the Scriptures, and even Moses himself. In fact, it's ironic. Later they'll claim, we are the disciples of Moses. No, you're not, because Moses was meek. <laughs> he was humble. You are far from that. You've missed it. You, 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 you've missed all that's gone on here. And I, I highlight that at the top of page 3. 
questions? There's a lot we could unpack here, and I know it's frustrating. And again, as I said at the beginning, I want to give you an overview of what's happening here. Because five is key. It's transitional to the book. And it seems to come out of nowhere that all of a sudden they want to kill him. But no, this has been escalating. And at this point, enough is enough. Yeah. Yeah, Paul just mentioned that Carson says that the man who's been healed is crotchety. Um, never once in the text do we see him coming to a saving faith, do you? That's not the point. The point is that Jesus is displaying his glory, and he's giving an opportunity to believe, but people still have to respond. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Why did he choose that man? <laughs> Who has known the mind of God? Why did he choose us? Right? I mean, come on. Why do you have what you have? Why does he allow you to, you know, breathe today? To be able to sit here at a table. Well, we could be laying in bed paralyzed. We could be uh, planning, you know, pushing up daisies. God has chosen in some marvelous thing. Um, and according to Ephesians 1, he did it. This is really blows my mind because he just delighted in doing so. Right? You look at this. Hey. I didn't seek God. He sought me. Yeah, Bob. Um, some have argued that the physical healing is an indication that there needs to be, that there's complete healing at this point. There's possibility of that, though the man isn't responding in repentance. Sin does seem to be a factor in his illness. That is not the case with a man born blind, which we'll see later on in John's gospel. In fact, remember, that's the question the disciples asked. Who sinned? And Jesus said, neither for God's glory. The parents didn't sin. The man didn't sin. In this case, there seems to be sin involved. Now, <clears throat> how exactly that plays out in this, I don't know. There's so much that John doesn't give us, you know, in the scene. Um, I hope that th this man will be in heaven someday. We just don't know. So we can even ask further, tell us your story. Um, but we don't have that. Let me give you a couple things to run with today in light of this text as we wrap this up. <clears throat> what I mean by this, when I say religion cripples one from walking with God, uh, religiosity, legalism. Uh, I grew up in an ultra-conservative background. I'm thankful for that. You know, a lot of the guys have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I'm thankful for that. At the same time, uh, it wasn't until I wrote, read Grace Awakening by Swindoll that it really turned my world upside down. Because I lived under this performance. It's, you know, concern what people think. Make sure you do X, Y, and Z. And it's so easy to, I think, being in the church to fall victim to that. I hear sometimes my kids make comments and go, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we don't, don't cast those judgments. Uh, and what I, let me spell this out. Number one, I think religion can create a legalistic system resulting in false security. And look at the religious rulers. Did they know their theology? Yes, forwards and backwards, right? They had it. They knew it. At the same time, it created this false security that, they, that hey, I'm not a bad person. I'm in the, in the camp, I do X, Y, and Z. And that's not the case at all. Secondly, what religion can do, it creates an, an absence of humility. That's, uh, you see that with the religious rulers, right? 
There's no teachable spirit. In fact, they're quick to condemn. Uh, Oswald Chambers writes, Conceit makes the way God deals with me personally the binding standard for others. <laughs> and that's what we see here going on with these folks. You know, um, religiosity, legalism become, can become a narcissist opium. <laughs> it really can. Uh, and that's a real danger uh, the presence of rules is not legalism. What is legalism? It's an, it's an, yeah, it's an attitude, right? I remember I taught at a Christian university and I had a couple of students say, oh, it's so legalistic. And you, it's, why is it legalistic? Well, you know, there's a curfew. You, you can't do X, Y, Z. I said, well, you know what? <laughs> That's true if you work at McDonald's. That doesn't make them legalistic. It's the attitude which surrounds the presence of rules. And that's something we all have to keep in check and, and evaluate. And, and that leaves us with the third aspect here, and that religion believes God's favor can be human, humanly obtained. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. You know, I, the religious rulers, I don't question their motives. They're wanting to keep the Mosaic law, so they created those nearly 700 oral laws around the written law, so as not to come near breaking it. So yay for them. That's fantastic. But it becomes a real crippling effect to the Jewish population. <clears throat> Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. It's a region. That is not a city. And you have a group of Jews who are coming behind his ministry saying, ah, Paul didn't tell you everything. If you're going to accept Jesus as your Savior, you also have to be circumcised. You also have to do X, Y, and Z. <clears throat> and Paul pulls out a paddle with Galatians, <laughs> and he just goes after him. He says in verse 20, I've been cru crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside God's grace, because if righteousness not could, could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Then he says in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, and that is not a complimentary term, who has cast a spell on you before your eyes? Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. The only thing I want you to learn from this is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law? Or by believing? Answer, class, what is it? Believing. believing. Are you so foolish, although you begin with the Spirit, you're now trying to finish by human effort? I meet guys on a regular basis. They're trying to earn God's favor. <laughs> well, you don't know my story, Hoff, but it's back at this point, I, I really blew it spiritually, and I'm trying to, no, no, no. The reason we do what we do, you, you can't have God love you more. He already loves you as much as he could possibly love you. It's Ephesians 1. Isn't that a great, I mean, that should make your socks roll up and down. You don't need more coffee for that. To, to know, hey, there's nothing you can do. He already loves you as much as he could love you. And the reason I do what I do is because it's just, hey, I love him. Why do I... Uh, Go get groceries from time to time. <laughs> time to time. Uh, why do I wash the dishes? It's because I love my wife. And it's a way, hey, let me do this for you. You know, 
uh, bring flowers home on occasion, on occasion. Uh, this is for you, honey. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it's because I love her. And, and, and the reason we do what we do for the, the Father, for Christ, is because our identity is in Him. We don't have to earn His love. We already have it. And you don't have to earn His forgiveness either. Simply repent. Right? It's, it's, is it just me? It's difficult to get caught up, isn't it? In uh, that trap of performance. We, we're a performance-driven society, aren't we? You know, you do this and this and this, and you get an award. You do this and this and this. Uh, careful, that's not how the spiritual life works at all. If you don't get anything from Hophaditz in our journey through John, grab that and run with it. Let me give you one more. True healing is found in Christ. I even have the text there in your notes for you, and you can see those, Psalm 147. But let me read 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in the body of the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. No, we might not have been crippled for 38 years but we were shackled dead in sin. And Paul, you brought it. Why did he pick the, the, the man here that's lame? Why did he pick me? Because he marveled in doing so for his glory. So I don't know if you are struggling this morning. Life doesn't seem to be raveling or it's unraveling for you. Cling to the cross. And recognize who you are in Jesus. Take Ephesians 1. Commit it to memory. Hang it on your beak. Print it out. Put it in front of somewhere you can see. This is a God. The sovereign God of the universe. The creator. The great I am. Who said. I bring you healing. By my wounds. Isn't that great? Father we thank you. We thank you for this story. Nestled in the text. Where Jesus displays not only his sovereignty, his deity, but also his humility. Because he says, hey, I have come to give life. And the greater deeds are unfolded later in the narrative. But Lord, we marvel. Why did you choose this man among a bunch of others laying by a pool to be healed? We don't know. Why have you chose us? <laughs> we do not know. It's probably why we'll have all eternity to explore that topic. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, Father, we marvel at your grace. Help us to be ambassadors for you. Help us to be children who are grateful and who glorify you. Not for works purposes so that we might earn favor, but so that we might do so because of the favor you have granted. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.